0: Hello and welcome to the Prospect Podcast. I'm Tom Clark, and this week Stephanie Boland will be talking to MIT architectural historian Timothy Hyde about his new book, Ugliness and Judgment. Steph, that's quite a title, isn't it? Ugliness. I mean, is it really just about whether buildings look good, or is there almost a kind of ethical dimension that gets muddled in with? Uh, people's appraisal of architecture, do you think?
2: Well, yeah, Hyde's book, as we'll hear, is all about this idea of politics and the aesthetics of architecture being intertwined and, I mean, we only need to think of something like accessible buildings to see how there could be a political side to this divide, but the question is what that relationship bears to aesthetics, to how things look as opposed to how they're laid out. Obviously, there's been lots of interesting work on this for years. If we think of something like Le Corbusier in the 20th century, the idea of um the house being a machine for living in was as much a aesthetic idea about clean lines and lines you could follow with your eye and no kind of gothic details as it was ease of movement. Um, But what we consider beautiful is also politically aligned. So think of something like all the Raj-era housing in India, that that was built to appeal to... a uh, colonised sense of taste essentially
0: the thing that um strikes me is often that there's something quite political about people wanting to make a statement about how big and important they are um and so um in early 20th century and the gilded age in new york i guess you've got the first range of skyscrapers and in more recent years as the city's got out of control we've got quite a lot of them in london as well
2: Yeah, Darren Anderson, who's written for Prospect on the Irish border, but is also the author of Imaginary Cities, which came out a few years ago, has an observation on this I really like where he says, wherever you are, you can tell the prevailing ideology by what the tallest tower is. So if you're in a Swiss village in the mountains, it's always the church, right? The church spire is the biggest tower. If you're in London, like you say, it's what Darren calls Towers to Mum on. It's all finance. And it's one of those things where once you have that idea in your head, it's really hard to stop observing it.
0: Mm. I mean, I, I, it's not so long ago either that London, um, you know, the city's been a thing for a while, obviously, but pre um nineteen eighty six Big Bang, there weren't these big towers in the same way. Um, I don't mind going to Canary Wharf, like um and you walk round it and it's all quite modern and sort of stylish and comfortable, but you do sort of think this could be anywhere and uh there's something nice about cities being very different from each other, isn't there?
2: I don't know. I always think with London I think it's a little bit of a pity we don't build higher. Housing. I mean, build it well. It's impossible to talk about tall buildings in London at the moment on near the two-year anniversary of Grenfell without thinking about tower blocks of a very different kind. Mm. But the idea that so much of London is only two stories when we do have a housing crisis in the city does sometimes, <laughs> sometimes grate on me a little bit. But you're right. The homogenisation of cities does does frustrate people, and often these buildings that are thought of as ugly and there's things like the Carbuncle Prize, which is given to the ugliest buildings are also the buildings that are most distinctive Mm. so I don't know if you've seen Liverpool Metropolitan Cathedral in Liverpool perhaps at a previous Mm. party conference that often goes on lists, I happen to really like it but um, more distinctive architecture is likely to be more polarising
0: So um, you know All art, it said, is quite useless, but all architecture certainly isn't. And it seems to be that something to do with the use that you know that a building's got affects very much um, how you um, think of it. Um, And now, like as London doesn't have much industry, people want to live in kind of converted mills and things, don't they? Um, When you think about other cities around the world, um, like how does the use and the look of the thing interact?
2: It's really interesting. I was thinking about this earlier with the Casa Rosada in Buenos Aires. I don't know if you know it. It's the the sort of almost imperial palace. It's that beautiful Wes Anderson pink. And I think it's really gorgeous, but it's got this contested history with Eva Peron. And so a lot of residents have very different feelings about it. Um, And then in December of last year, actually, I was in Riga in Latvia, which was freezing. And they've built a new national library, which is almost built like a... Well, this somebody's cut through a mountain. Um, so it's this slope up and then downwards. I'm drawing it in the areas if that's useful mm. for our podcast listeners in any way. Um, and I, I personally don't like the design of it, but it was this big moment in 2014 in Riga when it opened. They built a human chain to take the National Literary Treasures into this new library space. And when you go inside, it's very warm, which maybe because it was December when I was there really struck me, but very airy and open, and there's all of these beautiful things on display. So what you do within a building definitely can make it seem more beautiful, and equally you can have beautiful buildings which have a a history or an association that renders them sort of bittersweet, I suppose. I'm mixing my metaphors as so often, (laughs) dancing about architecture.
0: (laughs) I suppose the other thing that's bound to be important is just who the paymaster is, because um, there are times, like municipal eras in the 19th century, to some extent, things like the GLA building and Holyrood being built under New Labour, when the state is quite up for writing some quite big checks And then you've got times at the moment where there's been a lot of retrenchment. And so um, if there's going to be any action, it's going to have to be with the private sector because they're the only ones who are writing cheques.
2: Yes, it's true. And um, the thing that, again, always grates very personally for me, going back to those abandoned mills you were talking about, is when the previous use of a building is used to brand the new sort of luxury apartments that have been put there so um, I can't remember the name of the tower where there was famous graffiti that said I love you, will you marry me um, that somebody had had scrawled there was a Guardian long read about it um, but it was this actual graffiti by a resident and the whole block of flats has now been refurbished and they've put it on all the cushions and all the marketing this thing from its previous <laughs> life um, and the, the kind of left winger inside me finds that really <laughs> quite disgraceful to be honest but anyway <laughs>
0: There we are, commodification will out. Uh, Let's um, zip over now uh, to Stephanie's conversation with Timothy Hyde.
1: Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at Bluenile.com have got sparkled down to a science with beautiful lab grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. and with Burrow you always get fast free shipping get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com/acast that's burrow.com/acast burrow.com/acast Timothy thanks so
2: much for joining us um Let's start by talking about those two words in the title of your new book, Ugliness and Judgment. Tell me a bit about why you decided to pursue a study of ugliness.
1: Think about how many times you've either heard someone say or have said yourself, what an ugly building. In spite of the frequency of that phrase, what an ugly building, why would an architect design such an ugly building, There's very little historical or theoretical analysis of ugliness in architecture as a topic. And given the frequency of the phrase, the familiarity that we have with uh, the response to buildings as being ugly, it seemed that there was a need to explore that topic specifically and to look at the aesthetic dimension of architecture and to ask about its contemporary relevance, to also ask about its historical relevance. The second word, judgment, is in the title because what I'm interested in is whether or not our aesthetic judgments about architecture actually have a social consequence. They obviously have an individual consequence, so that we think about uh, having a response as an individual person to a building. We have personal taste. We appreciate certain styles of architecture. We deplore other styles of architecture. But the question of whether the judgments about architecture collectively add up to something of social not only importance but social instrumentality, that they have a social consequence, was really the driving concern for the book. A driving concern because in this contemporary moment it might seem in fact that aesthetic judgments about architecture are something of a luxury.
2: And that's something that runs through the book, isn't it? That ugliness isn't just restricted to the visual realm. There's all kinds of things about um, debates over pollution of different kinds or how we move in space.
1: That's right. Really, ugliness is not an inherent quality of any example of architecture. It's not an inherent quality of a building or the materials of a building. It's a judgment that we make about architecture. And what I'm interested in is the way in which that judgment about architecture, that judgment of ugliness, is actually also an assessment of some larger constellation of social factors that can be environmental, political, uh, economic, or cultural, and to look at the ways, therefore, that architecture is actually having an influence in parallel spheres of civil activity in economics, for example, or in environmental aspects of the city as another example, and to see the way in which the initial judgment of ugliness actually is a precipitating or a catalytic judgment in the sense that it leads towards subsequent changes, subsequent inventions of social techniques, or what I refer to as social technologies, like laws or policies or new institutions.
2: You write about this very well when there's a moment where you go back to the 14th century to talk about the idea of the nuisance that illustrates I think quite well what you're saying there.
1: There's a discovery, I think, uh, over the course of really several hundred years that architecture does not consist of individual buildings isolated from one another, but really is a system of connections between buildings. But this comes into view precisely because the rise of an industrial environment makes it more and more obvious that one building is actually causing, possibly, the ugliness of another building. So specifically, that the pollution being cast by a factory in the 19th century London is causing the decay, degradation, ruination of a building across the city. This begins uh, then a new set of thoughts in the 19th century about nuisance law, about environmental law, what we would now recognize as the initial environmental policies. But these do extend back to the 14th century, to these moments when the condition of people living in architecture and architecture being placed next to other architecture caused all sorts of uh, uh, different kinds of particular moments of ugliness.
2: It's also a question of who's casting judgment as well, isn't it? Because you talk about the people as judges of architecture, and um, you mentioned a competition where people were invited to submit the buildings they hated most to do, <laughs> do a list of ugly buildings.
1: I think in the contemporary moment, there's clear evidence or clear any number of examples of the way in which individual opinions on architecture being solicited. So you have the carbuncle cup, you have the demolition show on channel four, all sorts of listings in any magazine, newspaper, or blog on the ugliest buildings in London, for example. But those solicitations of individual and individual taste or individual judgment, important as those may be, to the people concerned, don't necessarily add up to some larger social consequence. But I think we also make collective judgments about architecture, collective judgments about ugliness. But those collective judgments don't happen with pronouncements in a newspaper. They happen in courtrooms. They happen in committee minutes. They happen in memoranda, in institutional Uh, ethics policies and things like that so what I'm arguing in the book and exploring in the book is the possibility that we should be looking or following the aesthetics of architecture not in the direction of taste personal taste but following the aesthetics of architecture into these other kinds of social activities like the writing of new environmental policy or the projection of new laws for control of libel
2: let's talk about some of those buildings in London that have been identified as ugly um, and whether our individual listeners stand on them personally so things like the shard the garden bridge which hasn't actually been built and now the tulip which is set to be built um there is a social aspect to the critique of these as well isn't there it's not solely aesthetic
1: There's definitely a social critique, and what's interesting in the case of these buildings is the way in which that social critique has a certain medium. It actually gets projected through a certain medium. And if you look, for example, at a building like the Tulip, Although there's a clear aesthetic appearance of the building and therefore any one of us can have a make an aesthetic judgment about that building, when it's evaluated and when it's uh, up for planning permission, the evaluation of its aesthetic criteria have to be translated most often into numbers, into quantities of environmental effects, for example, or into quantities of uh, economic effects, how much will things cost, what will be the economic benefits and so forth so that we can see that the building, like the Tulip, like the Shard, the Garden Bridge, what we recognize immediately as an aesthetic quality actually has many other um, many other ramifications or many other appearances in the form of numbers, in the form of economic descriptions, in the form of quantitative measurements. And so I would argue that we need to actually pay as much and perhaps more attention to those descriptions, uh, those translations of the aesthetic qualities of a building as a, as we do to the overt appearance of a building. Because in the end, those translated aesthetic qu- measurements will be the things that actually have an instrumental effect in... judgments in permissions uh, and in the later life of the building
2: let's talk a little bit about the figure of the architect because so often when we read these news reports critiquing what buildings look like they center on the architect often the celebrity architect behind them and cast out on on them as a creative figure
1: the first thing we recognize now, in any today, in any case, is that the architect really is not an individual. The architect is a persona. So that when we talk about a celebrity architect, we really are using their name, their persona as the shorthand for an office. And not just an office of architects, but an office of architects and consultants and engineers, uh, any number of disciplines that have some role to play in the design of a building and in the execution of a building. So the custom that we have of thinking about the aesthetics of architecture in terms of personal taste, it's not just a custom that we use when we encounter a building. It's also a custom that we've gotten very familiar with using when we talk about the design of a building. We assume that Norman Foster's taste is responsible for a given building. We assume that Richard Rogers' taste is responsible for a given building. We assume that Sarah Wigglesworth's taste is responsible for a given building. But in fact, their taste, like the taste of us as citizens in the city is mediated through these various other forms, these various other Uh, types of measurement of a building. So although we can look back and see celebrity architects like John Soane uh, being criticized for their personal taste in buildings and the taste that they imposed upon the city of London, we shouldn't necessarily carry forward that idea that an individual architect is projecting a personal taste upon the city and is therefore personally responsible for ugliness or not. Because once again, that blinds us to the reality that the aesthetics of architecture are being performed In other mediums. One of the episodes that I talk about in the book is the case of John Soane, 18th century architect, who suffered from a great deal of criticism in uh, in his career. His buildings, including his house, were described at times as eyesores, as ill-contrived, as dull. So he was suffering the charge of ugliness again and again in his career. He responded in a couple of instances by suing his critics for libel on the grounds that when they described his buildings as ugly, they were actually casting aspersions on his own moral character. The lawsuits, both of which Stone lost, combined with a few other lawsuits that occurred at the same time in the area of literature and book publishing, led to the modern formulation of libel law. In which the criticism of works of art, architecture, literature, are not seen or are no longer seen as a attack on the personal character and reputation, the moral standing of the person who creates them. This is an example of the way in which a debate about ugliness, which at first seems to be only about architecture and taste in architecture, actually leads very directly to the invention of a social technology, libel law, that then regulates certain kinds of discussions about aesthetics over the past 200 years.
2: It's interesting as well, isn't it, how other forms of shorthand and sometimes inaccurate shorthand are taking place so here again in London for instance there's a debate at the moment about building more traditional buildings and kind of using that word in scare quotes in this sense that perhaps something like the South Bank Centre or uh, you know a Wells Coates design is um representative of a sort of liberal internationalism on one hand and traditional values are represented by what a Christopher Wren on the other Um it's quite hard isn't it <laughs>
1: It is, and the 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 notion of style is a very again familiar and useful way of talking about buildings and being able to categorize uh, buildings into the camps of beautiful, ugly. Uh, or indifferent, uh, as most buildings probably are. But the category of style is also deceptive because it does produce a kind of shorthand, once again, where we think of a particular aesthetic aesthetic appearance of a building as relating very directly to the visual and sensory experience of the person who encounters it. And we don't think, for example, of Georgian architecture anymore in economic terms or brutalism in economic terms, And that allows us, or prevents us rather, from actually being able to see the aesthetic dimension of architecture in a much more multifaceted way. Uh, And so the style wars, which seem like they're uh, incipient once again, will uh, continue or can continue, but without reaching any kind of resolution. Maybe that's fine. But the thing is, while those style wars go on, we should also recognize that architecture is obliquely having a very palpable effect upon social techniques, upon social decisions, upon the identity of institutions, the uh, creation of new politics and new policies. And all of those are part of architecture's effects, architecture's consequences. So by moving sideways from the style of architecture into the consequences of a given style of architecture, I think we can ultimately have a more productive understanding of the way in which architecture actually shapes society.
2: Yes, it's interesting thinking somewhere like where I'm from, which is a Lancashire factory town, it's almost impossible to divorce those elements because the original factory housing is so transparently made to work around industry. Is is there a sense that we need to reconnect with that style and function and begin to look at architecture, as you say, through that social lens?
1: Well, we obviously have an overwhelming um, framework within which we have to think about architecture right now, which is the crisis of climate change. And so the function of architecture is really no longer simply what it does in terms of accommodating a given program, a given activity. The function of architecture is actually its performance environmentally. How much energy does it use? How much energy does it withhold? and questions like that. So when we think about the relationship of function and style, I think we're already in a much more complex equation uh, than we were used to dealing with, say, 50 years ago, certainly 100 years ago, where function really could be reduced down to the activity that a building housed. When we think about this other side of things, the performance of a building, the environmental performance of a building, I think that does change the equation of style as well, because this is where we would start to ask the question as to whether the aesthetics of a building matter, whether the aesthetics of a building really are a luxury in a time of crisis of climate change, a time of inequities in housing, a time of tragedies like Grenfell. We could think of the aesthetics as something that should be set apart from architectural discussions about uh, more serious issues in the real world. But I think if we think of the aesthetics and understand the aesthetics of architecture as actually being something that is worked out through performance criteria of buildings, then we can begin to link aesthetic decisions, aesthetic questions to these larger social Um, conflicts, these larger social problems that we face right now, and think about aesthetics in a more productive way.
2: I think finally it would be remiss given where we are in Westminster not to talk about the Houses of Parliament, which you mention in your book have been the subject of multiple controversies, including the fact they seem to be disintegrating now
1: that's right and and the the crisis that the Houses of Parliament face today was really uh, foreshadowed predicted right at the onset by the MP Joseph Hume who when the new designs were proposed for rebuilding the Houses of Parliament after the fire the fire in 1834 he asked whether the style of architecture that was being selected a gothic revival style would be durable Meaning, would it suffer from some decay or degradation in the metropolitan atmosphere of London? He was assured by Charles Barry, the architect, that it would not suffer from the environment of the city of London as long as the correct stone was chosen. The correct stone obviously was not chosen because the building began to show signs of decay before it was even finished. And so the uh, solution to that problem of decay, that problem of ugliness, very literally, in the ruination of the building, was postponed and postponed and postponed till the present moment. But the solutions to the problem at this moment, the relocating of the House of Commons, into Richmond House, for example, provokes a whole nother layer and whole nother iteration of the debate on ugliness where you now have a building, Richmond House, which was thought ugly by some at the time it was built now also being argued for as a uh, important object to be preserved and not altered, not disfigured, uh, in the words of some critics, by a new intervention to, ha- to provide a temporary accommodation for the House of Commons. So what this might suggest really is that the problem of ugliness isn't a problem that goes away. In fact, it may not be a problem at all. It's really a signal for us. It's a sign of architecture's participation in a particular kind of debate, a particular kind of conversation Conflict, a particular moment of uncertainty, and that when we look at that moment, and we might do this with the Houses of Parliament today and Richmond House today, we should see not just the outward view of architecture, the appearance of architecture, but the mechanisms with which architecture is engaging. So, in the case of the current uh, problem of the Houses of Parliament and what to do with them, framework is obviously preservation and decisions that we make or will not make about what architecture to preserve and what architecture to allow to pass into uh, historical time.
2: Wonderful. Thank you so much. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more.
0: Okay, that's all for this week. Um, Thank you to Timothy Hyde and to Prospect Stephanie Boland, who you heard from there. Thanks also to Rebecca Liu, who's this week's producer. Please remember, if you've enjoyed this podcast, please do subscribe and leave us a review, which really does help. See you next week and thanks very much for listening. Goodbye.